Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Brown People Problems, where I, Nikita, your host, chat with guests about what it really is about growing up brown and going through life while being brown. For today's episode, I have a really good friend and a lovely physician, Dr. Niadi Malkani. She is an old friend and she's a senior OBGYN resident in Saskatchewan in Canada. And she has a particular interest in global health and equitable access to healthcare, especially for Indigenous populations. And I'm so excited to have her on here and chat a little bit about uh, women's sexuality, brown women's sexual health, and all of that good stuff that comes with that. So welcome, Niari. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's such an honor being here with you. Yeah, and I'm very <laughs> excited to talk to you. When I was putting together all of like my content, my ideas for this podcast, and I really wanted to do at least one episode on just what brown women's like sexual education, sexual health looks like. And you're the first person that came to mind. I thought, thank you. Gosh, I have to get Niari on board with this. So I really appreciate you taking time out. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, of course. Of course. You know, I, there's so much to cover, to cover with this. But yes. I just find that we, I think things are changing and now there are more spaces for brown women mm -hmm. to kind of uh, get the right sort of education and really like navigate their own sexuality and have more access to the right type of sexual health information. But I still think it's something that we don't speak about enough, whether it is like culturally uh, in our spaces and our community spaces, or whether it is like professionally as well in these larger circles. And I don't know if that's been your experience, but that certainly has been mine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of this is very historical and there's a lot of things that you can't change, things that are taboo traditionally. And the other thing to keep in mind and something I've noticed quite a bit um, in like women's health, working in women's health in general is that often women's health is not prioritized in even a family situation. So often we see these women who are older and are caregivers for their husbands or for the, their whole family and their own health is so much so like the last priority. So let alone, you know, talking about sexual health, talking about these things, like it's just always on the back burner because the rest of your family has taken precedence it's taken importance and there is this cultural tendency especially in south asian cultures to behave that way as well right the woman is the caregiver in the home and doesn't take care of herself so there's a lot to uncover there there's like you know generations of um stuff so mm -hmm. i don't know that it's something we can fix in really but um going forward there's definitely changes we can make to kind of improve things for the generations that are coming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point, right? That we can create safe spaces to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. But I think in order for people to want to access these spaces, there needs absolutely. to be a bit of that mindset shift in the community where absolutely. women start to put themselves, if not first, at least on the same level as they put everyone exactly. else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I work in, in my work and for our listeners who maybe don't know, I'm a psychotherapist in my work, you know, I often help people unpack some of these indirect, more subliminal kind of messages that, you know, women have internalized by observing other women in their families, right? Mm -hmm. Like the aunts and the moms putting out food for everyone else before they feed themselves. Exactly. 
right? Uh, giving the best share of the food or I don't know, like the best part right? of the food exactly. to others before they get themselves. Yeah. And it's not like someone sits you down and says, you matter less or put yeah. others first, even though that does happen. But it's yeah. more of just what we observe and what we pick up. Right. How it's we that... see our elders model. Absolutely. It's definitely that internalized learning, right? Like you learn from your role models and you see your aunts, your moms who are, you know, respected and you know, praised for putting themselves on the back burner and they've sacrificed so much. And we definitely internalize that in how we treat ourselves and our own bodies and our own health. Like there is that learning. So absolutely exactly what you said um, in terms of changing that narrative, changing that dialogue to make it better for the future uh, future generations. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so glamorized, I think, and so like romanticized this mm-hmm. role of um, self-sacrificer and you know, like silent suffering. Mm-hmm. It's such a big part of our culture, and there needs to be yeah, like that mindset shift that you know what actually I, I want to do things differently for us to even access what is readily available to us. Yeah, it's also interesting. The other. Um, thing that's been noticeable with South Asian South Asian families that have now settled in North America is that there may be a slightly different approach to like healthcare in general in Asia versus in North America and I can't really speak to exactly what happens in India because I don't I've never worked there but many of our patients like do seem to have a mindset of you know you seek healthcare when there is an emergency problem and even then you avoid 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 until you really have to see somebody and a lot of sexual health is about preventative care right? and that's a whole other mindset that you know you're not like that needs to be learned it needs to be normalized that there is a whole aspect to our health and that is preventative care and we can actually prevent a lot of these problems rather than trying to chase them down when they're kind of far along. So that's another mindset thing that um, I think for our future generations would be very helpful to. Um, We as a group, as like a larger group, we are so reactive with Mm -hmm. our health, like so reactive. Like, and I think a lot of it has to do with like with the colonial trauma as well, right? There's a general mistrust of Western medicine. We know that a lot of uh, BIPOC individuals, black and brown people were, taken for experimentation during World War II. And so there's so much intergenerational trauma there. Especially in gynecology. Yeah, I think that is just, that's so unfortunate, right? And it becomes, that fear becomes so kind of learned and becomes so much like a part of us, which is why I think, especially brown people, right? We kind of go to homeopathy. Is that how you pronounce it? Homeopathy, right? Before (laughs) kind of like the Western medicine. Mm -hmm. Because there's just a general mistrust and like you said sexual health is all about preventative measures and if we don't have that mindset then we're not likely to engage in that exactly Mm. i think something that's you know very helpful is that through podcasts like this through interventions like this people like the conversation is opening and it's we are normalizing this type of conversation and it is more normalized in it's becoming more normalized in non-south asian demographics of our generation so hopefully as we you know are exposed to all of these things it does open the door to for south asian women to 
really pursue these um, avenues of information to be self-empowered and go get that information, even if it's not necessarily being discussed at home. Yeah, and I think the change is so like, um, has to be really fundamental too, right? Because I think about even just like our biology and I think I was in my mid-20s when I learned the right names for all the different parts of me. Right, like we just and yeah, and most patients we see have like no idea. Like we call everything the vagina. It's yeah. not. It's really not. It's called the vulva, by the way. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I think yeah. um, I actually started reading this book, and I'm looking at it right now. And I, I can link it for our listeners if they're interested. But it's called mm-hmm. "Come as You Are." Mm-hmm. And it's all about. I'm forgetting the author's name, but it's yeah. all about really kind of tapping into like your sexual pleasure your sexual desires mm-hmm. and learning to really kind of befriend your anatomy and it really kind yeah. of demystifies everything around all these things absolutely yeah. yeah because there's so much mystery around it we don't have the right language that's provided to us people turn to the wrong sources like pornography yeah um, or like i don't know reddit threads and they're too shy to yeah. talk to the doctors about it the doctors are too awkward to have a conversation about often this. very often yeah correct yeah. You know, the speaking of labeling of parts of the anatomy and normalizing what different vulvas look like, it's a huge thing as well. Like we've seen women who have come requesting major surgeries on their vulva for normal vulva. Like everyone looks different. Everyone has normal, it's all normal anatomy, but they feel like there's something wrong with them because of what they've seen usually in porn or on social media or movies of what is supposed to be normal. But that range of normal is so big and I have never met someone that actually has a medically indicated need for that, right? So I can only imagine that internal like feelings of shame or guilt that you must feel about your own body, not knowing what is normal because it's not talked about and because it's, it's not shown. And rarely even moms bringing their daughters for that. So and not realizing the long-term harms that can come of it. So there are a lot of major issues that still, and we see it every day in this space of care, um, where that internalized shame and guilt is, we see it every day. So absolutely opening those doors for conversation and showing what's normal, learning what our parts look like, what they're called, it's so important. Yeah, I think that education piece is so central because if you don't know, if you're not familiar with your own body, you are less likely to ask for help. You're less likely Absolutely. to ask for your needs uh, in a sexual relationship. You are less likely to know when something is wrong. You're less likely yeah. to seek medical attention. So that it all starts with just education and that like embracing of, of our bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I. And I, and I have some thoughts too, I think, on how like the medical system can be a little bit more receptive yeah. to that change. But mm-hmm. I remember this conversation I had with my family doctor. Gosh, I was, um, I don't know, 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. And it was a brown family doctor. And she asked me if I was sexually active in front of my mom, who was, you know, right Not there. Not appropriate. Not appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't even a are you sexually active? It was a, you're not sexually active, right? Okay. <laughs> so The exact same thing happened to me, by the way, with in front of my mom, 16, 17. Yeah. You're not sexually active, right? Yeah. yeah. South Asian family physician. 
Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that for me for years, I think sort of like closed the door on this conversation where medical spaces didn't feel safe. And it wasn't until in my mid 20s, I think that I had like my first pap smear. Mm -hmm. And I remember like so much anxiety around it, too, that, you know, what like what is my doctor going to ask me? What is going to happen? What if like there is something that comes out of this? Right. And Mm -hmm. I think I really had to coach myself through, Okay, this is a normal experience. This is a necessary thing to go through. And this person (laughs) is here for my care, for my benefit. And as a consumer of healthcare. I have the power to ask for comfort, right? So I think it takes a lot of coaching and not everyone has a bandwidth to do that work as well. I totally agree. It largely, it is the responsibility of the care provider to be able to open that conversation, especially when it comes to things like pap smears and preventative health and to really get a proper sexual history from a teenager. You can't do that in the presence of a parent, right? And these are all things that are now starting to show light in medical curricula in North America. Like our program, for example, had an excellent talk on sexual health, like a formal academic half day taught by a a specialist, purely on this subject matter, everything from the cultural influences to the anatomy. It was fantastic. But I believe it was either this year or last year, it was the first time that our program, which is a very contemporary Canadian, excellent program in obstetrics and gynecology has brought this in formally. And even in medical school, like excellent medical schools in North America, limited conversation on these things. So I think now that these changes are starting to happen, hopefully we will will see a generation of physicians that are able to have these conversations. But certainly, I don't think it's common, unfortunately, enough like i don't think enough providers are comfortable having these conversations today and it certainly contributed to some of the misinformation because then what will patients do you'll turn to social media you'll turn to sources that aren't accurate that sometimes profit off misinformation so it's very challenging and absolutely the medical field needs to evolve i think it is evolving and that we will Mm. see some changes but certainly it's not commonplace enough yet. And that combined with our attitude towards healthcare Absolutely. as a cultural group, right? I think that just creates this like lovely like ball of like mess. Yeah. And that's a lot to work through. Yeah. And for in today's economy, for our generation, we it's hard for us to afford a home, mm-hmm. the rising cost of everything, inflation. Yeah. Everything else with your health and mental health like takes a backseat. Absolutely. You're always going to focus on the things that need immediate attention as opposed to prevent things from happening in the future, right? So right now I'm on a rotation in gynecology oncology. So that's where we see all the gynecological cancers. And what is the most common reason that women present with cervical cancer? It's not being involved in a screening program is a huge risk factor for that. And it's life changing. It changes your body image, your, you know, sometimes self-worth it's terrifying but it's preventative it's one of the most preventative cancers in the world because of the screening programs and many women that have immigrated or have other life stressors social stressors don't engage in that preventative care and are therefore at inherently higher risk of these terrible things happening or they seek care later when things are further along and so your options are more limited Mm -hmm. So all of these 
you know, discussions that aren't being had, all of this putting your own health on the back burner, it actually has very severe lifelong consequences that we don't necessarily all realize until you know someone that's gone through it or seen it firsthand. And you can't know unless the conversation's opened or that your primary healthcare physician tells you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that in like a lot of marginalized communities, indigenous population, mm-hmm. the South Asian population, um, there is so much of that like intergenerational trauma, colonial trauma, right? Yeah. Cultural trauma, that that makes us also more susceptible. We have all the risk factors for absolutely. a lot of this stuff. And our mm-hmm. mental health is compromised as a result. Immigration trauma, acculturation stress, Absolutely. all these things add on. Mm-hmm. These can be some of the smaller, quote unquote, mm-hmm. traumas, but they still impact the body. Absolutely. Right. And if we're just so busy making ends meet on a day to day basis, right, making rent and putting food on the table yeah. for your kids as an immigrant mm-hmm. parent, you are not going to go to your family doctor for a physical every six months. You're not going to go get your pap. No, you're not going to go get your pap. No. You're not going to go for your mammogram. You're not going to, it's just not on Correct. the table. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's actually devastating. And now I think that we're getting to that age where we see more of our friends and family members suffering from the consequences of that. It's even, it highlights even more that if this is a desperate need that we need to talk about these things it needs to be normalized and we need to prioritize ourselves um and you know i sometimes think about how much like shame and secrecy mm-hmm. uh, there is around uh women's yeah. sexual health um especially in like our our brown families and, and i don't know if, if you're comfortable sharing um because i often reflect on my experience right uh not having access to information and just like this thing like a sh- like a taboo topic mm-hmm. we're constantly taught to be really um cognizant of our bodies and how our bodies are showing how we're sitting how we're attracting mm-hmm. attention that it just creates this whole bubble of like secrecy and shame around talking mm-hmm. about our bodies it feels like a dirty topic Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I'm i actually quite lucky in that I grew up in a home that was very open to these conversations and that I could talk to my own mother about anything. But certainly the things about, you know, hiding your body mm-hmm. and not being, not talking about it in public, that is certainly something that, you know, is quite prevalent. Um, I know not many people have that luxury, though, to talk with their parents or with their sisters or siblings or whoever Um, and I see that every day every day at work where even now women who have cancers of their gynecological organs cannot talk to their friends or family and have said that they feel like they have no support and no one they can talk to because you don't talk about your lady parts to anybody right and you've grown up not being able to do that and now that you really need that support system you don't know how to seek it when we say words like vulva and vagina to people the shock sometimes that you can see on their face like these are not words we use but we use it every day especially in the clinical setting where you see people's partners leave the room because they just can't hear the words that we're saying so like i see it all the time it's really it's very much um an issue and i can see how people who you know, need to have this conversation and can't with their loved ones um, can certainly suffer and long term. My mom gave me my sex talk in an elevator. 
<laughs> and she's gonna listen to this and i'm gonna get a yeah. text from her as soon as she listens yeah. to this but i got my sex talk in an elevator from the lobby up to our apartment and and obviously you know quick and dirty information of, is all you need to know <laughs> yeah exactly just like the the basics mm. um but you know obviously we don't also want to put a lot of blame onto like our parents like generation Mm-hmm. there's so much that they kind of have to have to go through and that's their own discomfort around having these conversations mm-hmm. as well so it's not to place blame anywhere no. but I there's also think about like the you know cultural reasons social reasons economic yeah. reasons like that have it's centuries old like this is not any one person's fault it can't be no, no no and I often you know think about how conversations around consent are also mm-hmm. missing right in our community so not just teaching girls consent but teaching boys consent and because again we haven't had most of us haven't had those conversations we find ourselves in abusive relationships or we find ourselves in situations where we feel that something is wrong here mm-hmm. by having given consent but yeah. we are not able to access the language to uh, mm-hmm. say no and we feel guilt tripped into performing sexually in ways that we may not feel comfortable as women or you don't feel that you have the right to say no because as mm. a spouse it is your duty to be present sexually for your male partner right like sometimes that cultural attitude has been around for a long time that that's your duty and that's what you do and you just shut up and take it right somebody once told me somebody older who I respect a role model a family member said that it's not rape if you pretend to enjoy it Oof. and how traumatizing is that to hear right as a young person but it's an attitude that's that's there it's your duty as a woman and it's so damaging yeah. how can we actually stand up and say no when we mean no mm-hmm. so there's so many layers to that Yeah. that need to be unpacked and you're right accessing that language and the confidence as well and knowing that you have the right to say no understanding that right and it's hard because you hear that in the public space but you may not be hearing that at home mm-hmm. so that's another thing to be aware of right it's all just so layered um and i think a lot of it just has to start with that shift like culturally yeah. to be able to talk about these things to even if it's uncomfortable talk yeah. about it mm-hmm. right talk about it with trusted people talk about with trusted family members trusted friends mm-hmm. um engage in learning like this that is available online because i think at the end of the day we are sort of the gatekeepers of our own health we have to take charge we cannot just go through life passively uh yeah. just putting out fires as they come thanks to the sacrifices of our parents and, and immigrant parents we are in a position of privilege absolutely and our position of privilege we have to use it well we have to use it to um better inform ourselves we have to use it to holistically lead a better life not just financially economically but yeah really taking charge of our mental health and whenever even if it's just me going to the doctor or my partner going to the doctor <laughs> i was like a pep talk and i'm like okay how are you going to advocate for yourself mm-hmm. because we also know family physicians and they have a lot of burdens and stuff but they're also notorious for just like shooing you out the door right yeah. very quickly mm-hmm. and that's the unfortunate circumstance of the system of our healthcare. healthcare but... system has a whole other conversation but oh, yes absolutely <laughs> yeah. but you know um i have like a pep talk with my partner every time like okay 
what are you gonna ask what are your questions how are you gonna advocate yeah. for yourself you know if yeah. your doctor is like getting out of their chair how what are you gonna say are you gonna say sorry mm-hmm. one more question right i think yeah. we need to have these conversations um yeah. they're important help at the end of the day you're right we have that responsibility to be you know to be in charge of our own health and our own well-being and to take these privileges that were afforded to us by our parents who have sacrificed and do better for ourselves and for our kids in the future should we decide to have them i know we've kind of touched on this already but i wonder if in your uh academic experience personal experience professional experiences have you noticed something particular about the brown women as a group and about their attitudes and beliefs around sexual health that you think are mm-hmm. like serve as additional barriers for us right. I do hate to make general comments about groups but that being said there are certain trends that I've noticed in women from South Asia who have immigrated especially those who have immigrated recently there certainly is like for example there certainly is a very obvious tendency to just agree with what a physician recommends there's hardly ever any self advocacy there's a lot of deferring to the male partner in the room to make any decisions or allowing sometimes i've even seen in-laws make decisions for a south asian patient who decides that oh they will decide like it's her intimate gynecological exam it's her intimate you know healthcare it's her childbirth however the decisions are being deferred to male partners or in-laws there's hardly ever any asking for help it's a lot of complying with whatever is asked of them from physicians or from nurses and it's quite heartbreaking actually that there isn't that ability a confidence to ask for what you need and ask for what you want there's also i have noticed a lot more like a disproportionately higher amount of anxiety coming into a place like labor and delivery it's all already an unfamiliar surrounding and given all the other stressors that we've t- talked about we know we biologically know that increased stress does negatively impact your labor and your childbirth experience it's a known medical fact and that's why pain relief is so important it's an integral part of the childbirth process but when you come with that heightened level of anxiety and fear those same hormones like that same adrenaline is impacting you physiologically so certainly there are there are definite tangible like medical impacts of all of this like you know generational trauma and cultural trauma that we're seeing in something as intimate as childbirth so yeah i mean if if we're not even taught to see our bodies as our own absolutely and no wonder we're deferring decisions about our bodies to others absolutely yeah. there's definitely certain like cultural beliefs about things like pregnancy that have you know they have likely their origin in thought, like things from back in the day or from different types of knowledge that has now evolved and we know better some risks and some mm-hmm. benefits of things but those cultural attitudes are sometimes hard to change like bed rest which is dangerous however very commonly thought to be important culturally during pregnancy is a small example of how these things can 
you know, conflict, like what is Western medical knowledge versus what is cultural belief. And it probably makes it hard for the patients too, right? Like, who do you believe? Do you believe your physician? Do you believe your in-laws? How do you take the advice you get in your doctor's office home when the advice there is conflicting and you may be shamed because maybe your body isn't your own. You're carrying the first grandson, maybe, right? So there's all those layers to unpack that can sometimes make people, providers who are not familiar with the, who are not sensitive to those cultural changes, they may feel it, hard, it harder to care for those patients as well. And it further damages that provider-patient relationship, further worse care. It's like this downward spiral that is so, like it's this, everyone's at a risk of that, given all of these different things. I'm not saying this happens with everybody, but you can see how all these different layers can really negatively impact someone's experience with the healthcare system and with something as big as childbirth. Gosh, I I didn't even think about that, but I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, and as you were saying that, I think about how uh, whenever I see pregnant women jogging, right, with like a running belt, like around their waist and they're jogging and they're running. And I know rationally, intellectually in my mind that physical exercise is good for you when you're pregnant. But then there's this like older, feels like a more cultural learning that's just like embedded in there that is, oh my God, what are you doing? Shouldn't you be resting? Yep. <laughs> right? And I think yep. for maybe those of us who are having these conversations and for those of us who are doing the work, we can really feel this like push and pull between well, these two parts of yeah. us. What you know, like in your left brain and versus what yeah. you know, like what you've learned at home and what you've seen throughout your whole life. Like, how do you separate those things? Especially, I think it's especially important in women's health because it's so like emotional. Like it's so emotional. It's so personal. It's so internalized. And when it comes to building families, it's, you know, often women feel it's not about themselves. It's about their whole family. So it's... A challenging area of health as well. Is there, uh, would you say, maybe not sufficient, um, mm -hmm. that's a very subjective term too, but is there, uh, in academic institutions, is there a focus on navigating a patient's like cultural attitudes and identities in, in your training as a physician? So we are lucky that we do have like a diverse population where I'm training. And so you do have to certainly acknowledge all of those things. And, you know, because ultimately the healthcare you provide, it's not just medical information. Yes, you have to provide that information that we have, like our best available evidence for whatever it may be. But then you have to use that information with a patient's values, their social situation there are other stressors put that together to make any decision right and certainly we've had formalized training for some of the populations that are more prominent um, in this area to get a little bit more insight into previous generational traumas and find the resources to help us navigate that but i would not say i've had that training with south asian populations in particular that being said where i train is it is a minority, like that group is a minority. I can't speak to where there are a higher demographic of um, of South Asian women, so potentially. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think as healthcare providers and as people in this field, I think we have to be able to observe and be aware of and talk about all of these different intersections, right? Of our identities. How does our culture intersect with our mental health? How does our culture intersect with our attitudes around our physical health? And until we talk about them, until we explore them, we can't really understand how this person is going to take charge of their health or not yeah there's just so many layers to unpack and i think you know opening this conversation and making it more um acceptable to talk about with our friends social media has been huge and i think it there's a lots of potential to do good there there's potential for harm but there's also potential for great information dissemination and having that access i think can really revolutionize the conversation going forward yeah absolutely um that's that's sort of my hope yeah absolutely yeah just (laughs) just largely um and i think whenever it feels uncomfortable to talk about some of this stuff what i find is to helpful is to acknowledge that discomfort and then Mm -hmm. still like push through it right absolutely the discomfort is super normal not because we're talking about something that is shouldn't be talked about mm-hmm. but it's because we've been taught to believe that this is uncomfortable yeah right? so it's yeah. not objectively true it feels subjectively true so we kind of have to acknowledge that but then still kind of push through it and say okay you know what i am gonna go for that like pap smear yeah. i am gonna talk to my doctor about whatever this little thing that i see right like yeah. on my body like we have to push through that discomfort Absolutely. It's so critical to not only your immediate well-being, but your future well-being. And if you, I know that attitude is certainly there that we need to be the caregivers for our family. But one of the best ways to care for your kids, your loved ones, is to actually make sure you're okay and, you know, make sure you're around and that you're well so that you're able to be there for them. And if we can foster that mindset, then I think it could certainly make a positive difference and maybe help people pay more attention to their own health and well-being yeah absolutely and if Mm -hmm. it's hard I think to find spaces in our personal lives for these conversations I actually I use this app called flow to uh, Mm -hmm. keep track of my cycle and they have this uh, secret chats section and they have like a lot of just yeah they have a lot of like chat services and these like forums and information that are monitored I think by uh, sexual health professionals so That's make sure cool. there's no yeah, uh, yeah. Wrong misinformation mm-hmm. and it's so lovely you know you can kind of use that Definitely. platform to talk about it and I remember once uh, they published an article about different types of discharge in mm-hmm. month and in your cycle yeah. and what what does that mean and I remember <laughs> I was like I think like 27 or 28 I was like holy crap like <laughs> this is never something that I had to thought about before yeah and it's something that happens every month yeah. in my body what do you mean different types of discharge <laughs> never thought of article. that <laughs> never thought of it and i had read yeah. through the article and i remember i was just i felt like a different part of me was like awoken <laughs> that they were yes. like wow <laughs> learn about your discharge <laughs> there's so much that i don't yeah. know about my body yeah. there's a lot we don't know and there's some excellent resources out there i think one of the challenges we're going to face as a generation and those younger than us is finding the right information because where there is abundancy there is also lots of space for misinformation and I do find that that is 
particularly common in the space of women's health. So knowing your resources when looking at that information, which we all do, we all look things up all the time, but looking at your sources and where that information is coming from and making sure that people aren't profiting off the information that is being shared, I think is critical um, because there's a lot of potential for that exploitation. It's always done in uh, vulnerable populations. Women are vulnerable, South Asian women are vulnerable. So just something that I think our audience should be very cognizant of when they're looking for information. That's a really good point. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So we also have this uh, duty to make sure what we're engaging in is uh, true. Yeah. And it's reputable, <laughs> incredible information. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think about often how, you know, we can help foster a more confident and comfortable next generation of brown women who are better informed and educated. And maybe I'm, I don't know, too much of an activist, but I think about how um, in my family, if I ever see someone, you know, telling a little girl, be like, oh, give, go give uncle a hug. And you're kind of seeing yeah. the kid just stand there. I'm the one who's to say, no, no you know, you're not. You're not going to go give any random uncle a hug, you know, you that you don't want to. Yes, exactly. You do what you want to do. Right. And yep. if you want to give him a hug, you give him a hug. If you don't, if you don't, you don't have to. So, you know, that's sort of my micro way of kind of really kind of standing up. But in your opinion, what do you think are some of the things that we need to do? I, I don't actually think that's micro in any way. I think that's fantastic. It's all these little things that add up, right? It's that exactly what you said before, that inherent learning, like we learn by seeing things and internalizing that. And even that example that you set for that little girl, I'm sure has carried her forward. So I think at the end of the day, we all just have to be very conscious of the things we say and do, especially in this field. And especially if you are somebody that has some sort of influence, someone like us, you know, we've trained in these areas and what you can, what you say actually goes a very long way with young, impressionable children. So I have every plan to talk openly about sexual health with my children, regardless of their sex from a young age, we call body parts what we call them by their anatomical name, right? And I think it's just setting that example from day one with everybody talking about it with our moms and our aunts, with young cousins, with friends, just those of us who do feel like we can have those conversations, actually having them, using the word vagina without flinching, using it more commonly. You know, I say it to my fathers to my uncles because that's what I'm studying that's in my textbooks so it's part of your anatomy it's all the small changes that I think we need to make consistently um, that work on normalizing things right and I actually think all of that cumulatively will make a really big difference yeah absolutely I think uh, I even think about how there's some sort of change happening in uh, Bollywood right where there's like a lot of more movies like around sexual health yeah i mean they're not perfect um 
still like the language around it's very clinical there isn't too much of a focus on uh the pleasure aspects of like a woman's like sexuality yeah. um and sexual health but there is some sort of you know like a change coming and i find that whenever someone asks me for a movie recommendation um mm. i'll sort of offer these movies with like social messages and yes. say oh have you seen that movie called less stories it's great because yeah. it actually like has all these amazing short stories mm-hmm. about women exploring like sexual pleasure because i think we need to be able to see this stuff as well like represented yeah. in media for us to start thinking differently about okay. how we interact with this as well um learning by example learning by example yeah. exactly i think just normalizing in some capacity or another viewership of this material mm-hmm. conversations around this um and discussion again in safe spaces right i don't think we all spaces in our life are safe i don't think we can kind of you know wave this like flag in front of some of the more traditional family members we can't yeah, need to yeah yeah without some sort of backlash so we kind of have to see what feels comfortable absolutely um, for now and navigate that space it doesn't have to be this huge overhaul this huge change overnight but just exactly. what is like 1% of what i want to do that i can do in this moment right and it still makes a huge impact because that 1% will make their own impact right yeah compound interest compound interest compound but in the good way yeah <laughs> the exactly. way that you want <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah i think um this is you know such an interesting topic that i know we can keep talking about for like days yes. and days and days uh for for a really long time but um i've really enjoyed our conversation it's today. been fantastic and i think more conversations like this certainly need to happen so this is a great start so thank you so much for having me it's yeah, truly absolutely yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on here. Um this is a topic amongst many. It's like very close to my heart. And mm-hmm. um you know so my hope is to also have a brown sex therapist come online at some point mm-hmm. so I'm okay, I'm trying yeah. to I'm trying to find one and I think I yes. haven't been able to find one and I think that just kind of goes to show that there is a yeah. need mm-hmm. but um I would love to continue having more conversations around mm-hmm. this because it's again topic that we don't talk about enough it's something that we need to think more about and hopefully today's conversation our conversation helps someone reflect on their own experience and helps them do things a little bit differently yeah absolutely yeah perfect so yeah. um we'll have all the resources down below i think the book that i mentioned come as you are and i think uh, dr malkani also has some resources to share um love to hear everyone's thoughts on uh, our conversation please let us know in the comment section below and like and share if this is a topic that really resonates with you and you think there is value here and stay tuned for our disclaimer the guest and the host of brown people problems do not offer individualized therapeutic or medical advice and our conversations should not be interpreted as such this podcast is not a replacement for therapy this podcast exists for educational purposes only Please consider your circumstances and engage with the content mindfully.